This is a case from uh, the Mumma Khan's case 26. Monk once went to see Master Hogan of Serio before the midday meal to ask for instruction. Hogan pointed to the bamboo blinds with his hand. At that moment, two monks who were, were there present went over to the blinds and rolled up the blinds at the same manner. Hogan said, one has gained, one has lost. Mumon's commentary. Just tell me, which one has gained and which one has lost? If you have the one eye open concerning this point, you will know where national teacher Sedeu failed. Nevertheless, you should not inquire into this problem in connection with gain and loss. The verse. The blind being rolled up, bright clarity penetrates the great empty space. Yet the great empty space still does not match the principle of our sect. It is far better to throw away emptiness and everything completely and with a tight fit never to let the wind pass through. Last week we, had, uh, we held the fourth uh, study session of the Bhimalakirti Sutra and I wanted to take time to expand on one of the primary teachings of the sutra, which is reconciliation of dichotomies or dualities. Now, Vivekananda Sutra is, is one of the most important texts in, Zen in the Zen tradition for two main reasons. First, it points directly to our grasping nature, or our divisive way of thinking, and it brings us right back to the even ground. All dichotomies simply come to an end. Which is an essential aspect of the Buddha's realization and his teachings. And secondly, it points at the relevant and pragmatic connection between what we call Zen teaching or Zen practice and what we call everyday life. Maybe it makes it easier to understand why this is called a living tradition. It's interesting, I find that uh, ever since we started to work on, on the sutra together, people find connections, more and more connections between what the sutra is teaching and our everyday life. You know, to read it alone can be daunting. Uh, the images are uh, strange, you know, not something that we are used to hearing or reading about. It's a lot of magical stuff. But when we work on it together, it actually comes to life. It's very important that we take what we study and live it. Now, Master Hogan was once asked by a monk, what is the essential point? And Hogan said, first, I pray that you live it. Second, I pray that you live it. 
the only important point. Right? This is what this study and practice is about. And I think one of the reasons why Zen practice is not hip as some other meditation practices, like maybe mindfulness, has to do with, with its appearance, which seems to be arcane, maybe disconnected from our everyday life in this century. And as practitioners, it's our responsibility to first reveal how tightly fitting it is with our everyday life, and then share it, embody and share it with others. Not so much verbally, but more so in our actions, in our way of being, in continuously expanding and expanding and expanding to include everything and everybody. To expand beyond what we, at the beginning, think Zen practice is about. And then to expand beyond other divisions other people may see or hold on to or live, live by. So to understand what the tradition is about means to be of service to all in whatever capacity needed. And to be of service to all, we need to drop the walls, drop the divisions, drop the comparisons. We need to expand. You know, when we take time to, to examine, to truly examine <clears throat> our grasping nature <clears throat> or divisive way of thinking, it's actually easy to see that, <clears throat> excuse me, easy to see that we are ruled by an underlying dualistic pattern of thinking. And it's easy to see how it penetrates and affects every aspect of our lives. And as long as we refuse to mess with it, we remain trapped within a cage of dichotomies. As in the Buddha's teachings of the eight worldly conditions revolve the will of samsara. It's gain and loss, pleasure and pain, recognition, insignificance, and praise and criticism. And each one of those each one of those states becomes a cage. And, the, and what makes it a cage is actually its opposite. Right? So it is a cage because there is something that stands on the other side of that. Either we want it or we don't want it. I don't want to feel like that. I want to be recognized. I am not recognized. Oh, I don't want to have this pain. Or whatever the other side is. 
right? So to recognize that we are, or we trap ourselves, we are trapped because we trap ourselves, and we do that by wanting something else. And wanting is essentially rejecting. And when we do that, not only that we cage ourselves, we actually, we invite things that perpetuate it, and we can't shake them off so easily. You remember from the Vimalakirti Sutra where when the goddess came and she showered everyone with flowers, the Alhats tried very hard to shake them off because they saw themselves as above worldly, mundane stuff. Right? Being holy, being sacred. I have nothing to do with flowers. I don't adorn myself with this. Therefore, I have to shake it off. And the more they tried, the more the flowers stuck to them. In other words, the more they tried to get out of that cage, the more they trapped themselves. And then the bodhisattvas who were present the, allowed the, the flowers to rain on them, and the flowers simply fell off. Why? Because they did not provide anything for the flowers to get stuck to. <clears throat> you know that saying, when you raise a target, you invite an error. How do we raise a target? By creating something, holding on to it, of course, there will be something that does not agree with that thing we just created or will oppose that thing we created. And there is the conflict, there is the division, there is the duality. And what happens when we are embracing all, when we are expanded, when all, everything is included? Nothing sticks to anything. Everything is allowed to come and go. It's amazing how we create things, or we go along with ideas of maybe society or other people or groups of people. Instead of examining it, we actually go along with it and believe it to be true. Remember the first years of my Aikido training. Remember, there was, there was a thing in Aikido that when you're called up to a demonstration with the teacher, the teacher demonstrates techniques and everybody pairs up and does the technique. That's how it works in class. And when you are called up to uh, participate in the demonstration with the teacher, it's kind of considered something good. And people want that. I remember the first few years of training, you know, since the first time I was called up for Ukemi, we called that. I kind of liked that. It felt good. And people responded to that. Right? We treat each other very differently when we think 
somebody has reached something. And at some point, it began to really bother me that I felt good when I was being called up, and I felt not so good when I wasn't being called up. And I looked at it and decided, well, I don't need this. This is not helping my practice. It's not helping my training. It's actually becoming, it has become a hindrance to the progress, or to my progress in practice, in training. So I just dropped it. It wasn't the switch, but it was, it was a process. But I decided that I don't need that. I don't need to feel good about being called up or feel bad about not being called up. Either one is an obstacle. I mean, it actually became a lot easier. It was a long time ago. It became a lot easier after that to focus my entire attention on the practice. And it's not just in such scenarios. It's all the time when we are praised or belittled, criticized. We are raised up or pushed down by others or by ourselves. What does it do? What changes within? What is born at the moment that we go to either one of those sides? You know, dualistic way of thinking or the discriminating consciousness as it's often referred to in Buddhism has been the culprit of our harmful and hurtful actions throughout history. It's the crux of it. Across continents, across time, we have been wreaking havoc on one another, on our environment, blinded by our small, self-centered minds. And our, our task as practitioners is to recognize how this mechanism works, right? To to take the time to look at it on a regular basis and to see how to see how much of it we don't see how much of it we're not even remotely aware of and then with time and practice little by little become more and more aware of how we create toxic environments by bringing our own divisiveness into this world. And how our own divisiveness attaches to other people's divisiveness. How quickly it happens, right? And so our task, our most vital task, as, as human beings, not as practitioners, but as human beings, should be to see the falsehood of this mechanism and to get in touch with the ground which naturally, naturally equalizes all divisions. And what's amazing about this is when you, when you shed light on the falsehood, 
you shed light on the truth. And that's precisely what Master Hogan is, is exposing us to in this koan. He's creating complication in such a skillful way. He's creating a complication in a way that revolves the Dharma. And that's Upaya, which is the second part of the Vimalakirti Sutra. All these koans, and everything we do in practice is essentially upaya, skillful means, to shake us up so we begin to see things the way they are. So for the sake of our awakening, he raises waves where there's no wind. So let's do that here raise some waves. So let's say that now I will, I will say to two of you to go open the windows, get some fresh air. So I will tell Mitsugen, go open this window, please. No, no, you, let's pretend. <laughs> you were specific. I am. Let's see what's going. And then Tetsuki is going to go open that window. Right? And both of them stand up, open the windows in exact same way. Then I would look straight ahead and will tell everybody that one of them has lost, one of them has gained. One of them got it right, one of them got it wrong. How do we feel? How will the two of you feel? What about the rest of us? Maybe thinking, well, I'm glad I was not called up for this task. Right? Who knows if I would be the one who gained or the one who lost. What does it do? What does it stir up in us? Because there is, maybe I think I'm good at something, right? And then somebody says, well, you're not good at it. What does that do? There's a clash between what I think I am what I think I've got, and what somebody else says about that. What the world says about that, or about me. And what kind of emotions are stirred up when we encounter this, such scenarios. And we encounter it all the time, it's nothing special. Right? You go to work, being praised for something. Good job. How do you feel that day, that week? You go to work and that was a terrible job. I thought you were much better than this. You have a lot of experience. What happens then? What do we take with us home that night, that week, that month? Right? We jump from one cage to another. Am I good? Am I bad? Am I great? Do I suck? Which is it? 
And, and Hogan is not indicating who was the one who lost and who was the one who gained. Or, or what are the parameters by which he is actually judging them? Or is he judging them? All he said is, one has gained, one has lost. That's what he said. How do we hear it? Because the, the staring up does not happen when the words are uttered. The mind is stirred up because of the way we, we hear it. It's not the tone, it's not the words, it's not the raising of the eyebrows or the weather. It's how we respond, which in a way gives us a, a great clue to what we need to work with. Right? What, is, what has been stirred up in me right now? What is responding? How do I work with that? So for, this, for the sake of this teacher, let's just say that there are three different ways to hear this. First one, one has gained. One has lost. Second way, one has gained. One has lost. And the third one, one has gained, one has lost. How's this sound? What does our mind do? What does our minds magnify when we hear something or see something? Do we actually hear what is being said? Do we understand why he's doing what he's doing in this case? He's mirroring something. Us. But when their eyes are when their eyes are our eyes are open, maybe we see some. When the eyes are closed, all we see is what we what's going on already in us. And then maybe there is a clash. Maybe there is a disconnect. Some discrepancy between what is being said, and what I think I am or where, I'm, where I think I am. Maybe it's fortifying something, maybe it's clashing with something. Or maybe those two are one. Right? Because it's clashing, it's fortifying. Because it's fortifying, it's clashing. So the way we hear this can either create further mental constructs in our minds or set us free for the mental constructs we already have in our minds and grasping too. Like the example of the flower sticking to the ahats. The flowers did not fall on them with glue. They carried the glue that made the flowers stick to they created the glue that made the flowers stick to them. So what do we create? And what's that glue made up from? What are the ingredients? Mental constructs form the basis of our perceived identity 
And our words and actions are a reflection of our perceived identity. Simple. You know, whether we feel giddy about being confirmed or being praised or recognized, and we feel really bad about or crappy about getting singled out or about making a mistake. In either case, the expressions, those expressions that come after that through words and actions, reflect a distorted sense of self, an image that we hold on to. And either way, that image is an extra layer that covers up our authentic self. And that's one of the things I, I realized when I was, when I found myself happy about being called up, about re being recognized for something, and not feeling so good when I was not recognized. Both are extra layer that we think we need to put on because we think without that we cannot survive. And when we get used to putting a specific kind of layer, it doesn't matter anymore what we hear. It's always going to be perceived based on that. There's something to protect, there's something to go for, there's something to, that I want to identify with. And, and the practice is asking us to be fully aware of the thoughts and feelings that arise in the mind when it is stirred up. And to recognize that those are patterns of, that have habitual momentum. And when we do that, when we do recognize it, we are asked to keep returning to the ground level, to a place before the mind moves, before it is stirred up, whether you think you're great or you think you suck, before it's, it's stirred up, before those thoughts appear, there, this Dharma is equal, no high, no low. And this is where genuine, authentic behavior comes from. Not running away from this and running after that. I mean, no way we can say that, uh, to sum up the practice, we can say that we are here to, to train to be authentic. Strange that we have to train to be authentic. Or we have to train ourselves out of not being authentic. We have to just recognize it's okay to be authentic. It's okay to be just like this. Bald hair, no hair, 
tall, short, fat, skinny, achieve, not achieve, young, old, black, white, green, yellow, all of it, just as it is. How simple it is and yet how excruciatingly difficult it is, painful it is for us to just be authentic. And think about it. these two monks, right, just got up of their cushions, walked over to the window, grabbed the string or whatever they had back then, bamboo string, pulled it up. That's it. Just like us, everyday activities, blinking the eyes, walking to make a cup of tea, eating, drinking, talking, scratching the nose. Where is the question there? Where is the question of getting it right or getting it wrong? Where is the question? Right? Because if there is no question, there is no issue. Hogan says, one has gained, one has lost. At that moment, how do they return back to their cushion after rolling up the blinds? Just think about the way they went back to sit. Is there something not authentic in the way they sit? The way they walk back to their cushion? Where's the problem there? It's brilliant. It throws it out there. Now go ahead. Let's see if that becomes an issue for you, or if this creates an issue for you to sit down. Because we can sit down very heavy. It is a burden. God, I screwed up. Right? And actually, people walk like that. We do walk like that when we feel... What's the difference between walking after receiving some kind of praise and walking after being criticized for something? Right? We can feel light, easygoing. Or heavy as if the whole world is sitting on us. And we look like that too. We carry it around and it appears often. You look at people, you see as if they're carrying the whole world on their shoulder. What's the difference in the way we communicate with other people? When we don't buy into this or to that. Because we are not looking to buy anything. Because we are absolutely satisfied with the way it is. Because we are not judging it. Right? Because what are the, par- the questions, what are the parameters you think Hogan is 
judging them by. And what he's doing is he's asking you, he's asking us, what are the parameters by which you judge yourself? Is that true? Also in relation to, to working on koans, you know, when you go into Tokusan and you express an, uh, an answer to a koan, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? Sometimes you have to look at it more. And sometimes it's good and then you move on to the next koan. Or it does what it needs to do and you go to the next koan. But in either case, go down and express it fully because that's already authentic if you do express it fully. Whether or not there is after that a recognition that this works, it fits that con well, move on to the next one or go back to the cushion and work on it again or some more. That doesn't matter because it doesn't change the authenticity of the expression. In other words, whether, whether or not the expression is correct in terms of practice is irrelevant or is secondary to the fact that when you open up your mouth and you speak, it is authentic. And by that, you're already practicing what we're practicing. So why judge? Why go back to the cushion with the weight of I failed, for example? Or with the weight of I succeeded? Either one is a layer. Right? So we have to admit, we feel, we, do, we go back and forth, but we're feeling really good about something and feeling really bad about something else. We all do, which is fine. But we have to recognize that those feelings can create extra layer that will hinder, will get in our way will create divisions or will attach itself to other divisions already created in the mind. And because we feel this way so often, it actually makes perfect sense to, of course, you know, when I get praised, I feel good. When I get criticized, I feel really bad. It makes perfect sense. Everybody does that. But so what? Does it really work? Right? We have to see beyond that. We have to see beyond our own seeing, actually. Beyond our ability to understand. That's why it's called, as in the Vimalakiti Sutra, emancipation beyond comprehension. Beyond our ability to grasp and understand That's emancipation. Hogan is Fayan. You may remember him as Fayan, 9th, 10th century teacher, Chinese teacher, the founder of one of the five houses of Zen, a school that didn't last that long, only five generations, I think but left a strong impression on the development of Zen. 
So there's a story about Hogan. When he was a young monk, he went on a pilgrimage with two other monks to search for a good teacher and deepen their understanding. And one day, as the weather got challenging for them, it was snowy, they had to stop traveling and decided to find shelter at Dijang's monastery. Dijang was the, the teacher there, the abbot. So Dijang, uh, at that point, looked at Hogan and asked him, what is it that he hope, he's hoping to find in his search? And Hogan answered, I don't know. And Dijang said, not knowing his nearest. And it says that hearing this, Hogan had a deep insight. And the next day, the snow was gone. They were able to leave. As they, as they were about to leave and uh, bade farewell to Dijang, Dijang accompanied them to the gate and asked, I've heard you say several times that the three realms are nothing but mind and all dharmas are nothing but consciousness. Now tell me, is that stone over there, over there in the courtyard within your mind or outside your mind? Nogan said, it's within my mind. At this, the abbot said, oh, you wanderer, what makes it so necessary for you to travel with such a heavy stone in your mind? And Hogan was taken aback by this answer, put down his bag, and decided to stay longer with the abbot in order to settle his doubts. So every day, he presented his understanding, his new views and new reasons or explanations to the master. And every day, Dijang replied by saying, the Buddha Dharma is not like that. In the end, at some point, Hogan said to the master, I've exhausted my stock of words and reason. And the master said, in regards to the Buddha Dharma, everything you see embodies it. It's interesting how he could have said that before, but he didn't. All he said before is the Buddha Dharma is not like that. So everything that Hogan brought was rejected. No, 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 no. And at the time where he came with nothing, he said, in regards to the Buddha Dharma, everything you see embodies it. So complete negation of everything became total affirmation of everything. But at the right time, after he himself experienced exhausting himself completely, having nothing to hold on to, nothing to bring anymore, then, now you're open to see that everything around you embodies it. And it says that, that hearing this, Hogan was greatly awakened. You may remember the conversation between Shariputra and the goddess in the Sutra, in the Vimalakita Sutra, when she asked him about attainment, and Shariputra said, I have realized that there is nothing to be attained, and so I've attained it. And this is what Hogan realized. After trying to assign different conceptual meanings and explanations to the Buddha after trying to match the Buddha Dharma with his concepts for a very long time, he realized it's not working. 
He gave up on that. Then, everything was it. And what he realized is that our thinking minds work in a binary way. And as soon as the mind moves, it creates divisions and dualities. So if we want to know about the Buddha Dharma, you want to know, call off the search. Put down the backpack. Stay for a while. Stay and look. Sit with it. Is there a question? It's inevitable, right, that when we raise a question, we are going to want to find an answer. But what if we put a rest to the question? Or if we exhaust the question, realizing I cannot answer it. Well, either way, we have to put the question down. The sooner the better. But when the question is being put down, the question of what is this, right? And then you recognize, well, there is no question. What's left is authentic, real, unhindered. No layers. Complete acceptance, embracing everything. Whatever the experiences we're having, we need to allow these experiences to kill the duality by fully acknowledging the way it is, by merging with it, and by not creating alternative scenarios in our minds. Everything is it, means everything is a gateway. Every experience is a gateway to the ground, to the souls. Because in the, world, in the realm of Dharma, nothing is ever lacking or missing. But it feels that way. And because it feels that way, we look elsewhere. Again, as in the miscellaneous koans, Right? This is the one we have. This Dharma is equal, no high, no low. It's so crucial that we understand that the Dharma equalizes but does not homogenize anything, right? Does not homogenize people, does not homogenize experiences. fully expressed in sameness and in differences. There's a poem, Fayan used to write poems, and one of them, he says, he used to write poems after he was awakened and became a teacher. He said, a bird 
in a secluded grove sings like a flute, willows away gracefully with their golden threads. The mountain valley grows the quieter as the clouds return. A breeze brings along the fragrance of the apricot flower. For a whole day I have sat here encompassed by peace, till my mind was, is cleansed in and out of all cares and idle thoughts. I wish to tell you how I feel, but words fail me. If you come to this grove, we can then compare notes. That's his only wish. That we go to that grove. So then we can compare notes. And then we can see each other, eyebrow to eyebrow. Stand next to each other. Recognize. No high, no low. Beyond unity, beyond multiplicity. Mumon's verse, the verse says, the blind being rolled up, bright clarity penetrates the great empty space. Yet the great empty space still does not match the principle of our sect. That's the practice. That's what the practice is about. It's about going beyond even that. Even clarity. And he says, it is far better to throw away emptiness and everything completely and with one with a tight fit never to let the wind pass through now to see the visions to see how the visions are created just to see how they are created and go nowhere with it why would we want to go anywhere when we recognize that this is absolutely perfectly it at any given moment and with any given experience, it is absolutely perfectly it. 